Here we go. So it was about 10 years ago or so, uh, my wife and I, we graduated from college. We're getting ready to move from Joplin, Missouri to Champaign, Illinois. Uh, and we had one car at this point in our marriage, uh, and it worked for us up to that point, uh, but now we were entering a new stage where we needed a second car. And that was kind of a problem because we had no money. Now, we graduated from college debt-free, which was awesome. It was an amazing feeling, but we were broke, y'all. Like, we were so broke. 2008, the financial crisis hit. We lived through that. We slept like babies the entire time because we figured we can't lose any money. We didn't have any to start with. So everything was fine, like, but we just we didn't have any money. So my dad, about this time, he bought a new car. He got a killer deal on it, and he said, I'll tell you what, I will sell you our old car, and you can just pay what you can when you can. And I was like, that's perfect. That's exactly the kind of loan I need. No money down, no interest, no minimum payment for as long as it takes. Like, I can't get a better deal than that. And so we've got this car. So we moved to Champaign, and, and we were going through life, and I was trying to go through seminary debt-free, and we were trying to build some savings, like, get our life together, you know, because we're adults. We've got to do this now. And so we were making payments on this car, a little here, a little there. We got about half of it paid off. And then Christmas came, and my dad, he, he gave us this gift. And what they do every year, they get, like, this big box. They fill it with tissue paper, put something small inside, make us dig for it. And they do it every year. So, like, it's not a surprise, but it is kind of funny to them. They get a kick out of it. So we dig through this box, we find this white envelope, and inside there's a piece of paper, the picture of the car, and these words at the bottom of the page, it says, paid in full. I thought, oh man, it got me. I'm not going to lie, I teared up a little bit, because like, I didn't see this coming. Like, my dad is a great guy. Some of you have met my dad before, he's a really awesome guy. But I will say this, I won't say he's cheap, I'll say I'm cheap, and I learned that from somewhere. So, like, this is just not the kind of thing I expected from my dad. But fast forward the clock a few years, and I get it now. He's like, I'm a dad. And I understood it then, but I just, I get it in a new way. Fathers, we do not want to see our children hampered. We don't want to see them hamstrung. We don't want to see them shackled. We want to see them free to thrive and to be everything that they can be. And if that means that we got to pay a little extra, then even the cheapest among us will find a way to set our kids free. Amen? That's what it means to be a dad. And dads, I want to let you in on something. We didn't figure that out on our own. All right, we have a father who has done that for us, who has paid an incredible price to set us free to be greater than we are today. We learned that from somewhere, it was from him. And that's what I wanna talk about today on this Father's Day. I wanna talk about our father, I wanna talk about what he's done for us in Christ and the freedom that he's given us through Christ. Today's message is a continuation of a series that we've been in for a few weeks now called Greater. And in this series, the main idea is this, God has this great existence that he's offering us. And it's not necessarily the life where your wildest dreams come true and your fantasies become reality, but it is a life where there's peace, where there's hope, where there's satisfaction, where there's contentment, where there is a life that is, is exciting in its own different ways, where there's calling, where there's purpose. It really is a great life. And he offers this to us, and we don't find it through pursuing lesser things. We find it through pursuing somebody who is greater than ourselves, Jesus Today we're talking about the freedom that Christ brings us in this greater life. And to do that, I want to continue looking at the book of Colossians in chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you pop those open to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 9. That's where we're going to start. If you don't have your Bibles with you, don't sweat it. We always put the passages on the screens to the side. Or personally, I would recommend you download the FCC Monmouth app to your mobile device. Click the Sunday button. It's got all your sermon notes and your Bible passages pulled up for you, ready to roll, so you can get the most out of this morning. So, freedom. Freedom is one of those qualities, one of those things that everybody cherishes. 
it doesn't matter what, uh, what culture you're from. It doesn't matter what point in history we're talking about. People have always cherished freedom and sought after freedom and fought and bled for freedom. I mean, we look at our own society. It's, it's one of those core values of who we are as Americans, which makes it kind of funny because even though we live in a free country, there are so many people that would describe their lives in terms of bondage. And sometimes it sounds like this. I don't think I'll ever get out from under that debt. Or it might sound like this. I will never forget what he or she said or did to me. Or I don't think I'll ever be able to forgive or get past what so-and-so did that one time. Is bondage. Bondage in the form of debt, bondage in the form of the past, bondage in the form of bitterness, of sin. So many times, even though we live in this free country, we put shackles on our own wrists and we live in this freedom. What we need is a freedom greater than political independence and, and political freedom. What we need is a greater kind of freedom that sets us free here and here, a transformative kind of freedom. And that's what we find when we look at Christ and what God has given us in him. We see that a couple different facets of this freedom. We can't cover the whole topic like freedom in Christ in 30 minutes. But we do see three very significant facets when we look at Colossians chapter 2. So let's turn our attention there. And the first thing in the cornerstone of this freedom that we have in Christ, we see that Christ sets us free from judgment from our sins. He sets us free from the judgment of our sins. Now, I know we came to church on Sunday morning. You expect to hear this, right? But this really is the foundation of all this other freedom that he brings into our lives. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, it goes like this. It says, For in Christ, all the fullness of the, de the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. And in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human man's hands. Come, we're going to get to that. Okay, don't get tripped up over that. Your whole self-rule by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So, pretty clear, right? We all got that? No questions, right? No, that was a really difficult passage. It's really dense, and that's the thing with Colossians. It is a really dense letter, and it takes some time to digest and work our way through. We are not going to be able to cover all of it in five weeks in this series, and so I would encourage you be reading Scripture outside of Sunday morning. We gave you a 30-day reading guide at the beginning of this series to encourage you to do just that because there's a richness in God's Word that we're not going to uncover just in 30 minutes once a week. We're not even going to cover all the richness of this paragraph, to be honest with you. But there are some key points I want to hit on. One of them is circumcision. Like I said earlier, some of us hear that and we go, what? Like, what kind of a church is this? What does that have to do with Jesus and freedom and sin at all? And it doesn't, but we need to understand what it means. You see, in the, in the context of this letter, we have these people living in the city of Colossae. This is Greek city a long, long time ago. And they had no idea who the real God was up to this point. But then the Apostle Paul and some other people, they came, they preached, and then they said, we believe in Jesus. And now they're doing their absolute best to follow Jesus the way they were instructed to do. And here's where the problem comes. There are these false teachers that come into the community. And we're not really sure what exactly they're teaching, uh, but we do get a lot of hints all the way through the letters. There's this strong undercurrent of like Jewish mysticism in whatever they're teaching. And if you know what exactly that is, that's okay. It's just, it's just to say that there's a lot of like Jewish rituals that they're coming in and saying, you got to do it this way. Circumcision, for instance. In the Jewish faith at this time, circumcision was this huge part of how you honored God. It's what sets you apart as belonging to his people. 
It was this sign that I am faithful and obedient to him. Now, it has nothing to do with Jesus and following him, right? But they're insisting that they're coming in this community saying, no, 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 you got to do it this way. You have to be circumcised and do it the old ways, the way we've done it for thousands of years. That's what God really wants. And so when we read this paragraph, the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote this, he went and he planted churches and preached the gospel all over the ancient world. He writes this letter and he says, look, you guys received a circumcision of sorts, right? It wasn't like a physical, literal one. He says it's not done by human hands. Let's explain what that means a little bit. He says, basically, your circumcision, it's not so much about removing a piece of skin, it's about removing the flesh. And the flesh is this metaphor that's used throughout the New Testament for that part of us that yearns to rebel against God. Like there's a part of our innermost being where just we crave to do the opposite of what God asks and desires of us. And just case in point, my son, he's going to be three this month, his flesh is in full bloom uh, because he constantly yearns to rebel against his father. And this happened last night. It was bath time. He's in the tub. I've got him laid out. We're washing our hair. And he's really into spitting right now. I don't know if I've said, mentioned that before, but just I don't know where it came from. He just spits all the time. It's gross. So he has this mouthful of water, cheeks all puckered up, and I can tell what he's going to do. I can see it in his eyes. I give him the dirtiest look. I say, don't you do it. And I could see in his eyes that a decision was made. It was the wrong decision, but he made it. And parents, I think you know what I'm talking about. Like, you can look at your kids, and you just know. You just have this intuition about what they're doing or what they're about to do. And I knew what he was going to do. And sure enough, and there's water all over me, and there's water all over the carpet and all over the toilet. Rebellion, y'all. That's the flesh. And we do the same thing when it comes to God. He looks at our lives. He looks at our hearts. He says, don't you do it, and yet we make the decision. We choose to rebel against our creator, to rebel against our father. We choose sin. That's what sin is. It's rebellion against God and how he made us. But what Paul has said in this letter is, look, when you were baptized into Christ, when you said yes to him, something miraculous happened. You went under that water, and you were buried in a watery grave same way that Jesus was buried in a tomb. And when you were down there, you died. That flesh, that part of you that yearns rebel against God, that God, it died. It was buried in that watery grave. And by the power of God working through your faith in Christ, when you came up out of that water, you were raised to a new life the same way that Jesus was raised to a new life. You've been set free from the flesh. Now, that doesn't mean we don't wrestle with it still. I'll tell you, there, I woke up this morning and I wrestled with it because I'm, I'm weak at times. But but you know what? I don't have to say yes to the flesh. You don't have to say yes to the flesh. We can now say yes to God. We can choose to be faithful. We can choose to walk in righteousness. We can choose to walk in holiness. We can choose to be who he created us to be and always intended us to be. We've been set free and liberated for that good cause. And you might be saying, well, that's awesome. From this point forward, I don't have to live by the flesh. But what about the past? Because that might be kind of a colorful chapter of some of our lives. Is God going to hang on to that? Does he remember all of that? What now? Well, we keep reading. We find the answer. Look at verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 13. It says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. 
Rebellion always brings judgment. When my son spat all over me and everything that I owned, there was judgment. I would like to say retribution rained down in our house last night. Really just a little bit of frustration. But there was judgment. The same thing is true when it comes to our sin. There's judgment. There's this debt that's created. There's this distance put between us and God. There there is harm. There there is hurt that just stacks up and builds and accumulates. And previously, before Christ, yes, we would stand in judgment for that sin. But now, as we read, we've been set free. He has forgiven that sin. That debt has been paid at Christ. Our ledger has been wiped clean, ironically enough, with the red, the blood. We're now white as snow. We are free from sin, past, present, future. We've been set free, liberated. We no longer have to fear judgment. We no longer have to fear that day when we stand in front of God. We no longer have to fear eternity and what's on the other side. Guys, we're free. And there's peace and there's hope and there's joy and there's love in that promise that we have. And Jesus is responsible. He has set us free from the judgment of our sin. Now, that's the cornerstone of what we're going to talk about, because like we said, this is a multifaceted freedom. Because we're set free from sin, there are implications for the rest of our life. For instance, we keep reading, we also see we are set free from the judgment of others. I'm not talking about petty stuff either, like you wore white after Labor Day or your brown belt doesn't go with your black shoes, like that kind of judgment is dumb. I'm talking about the kind of judgment that we take to heart, those pressures that society and our world and the people around us put on us and actually make us feel inferior and cut us down. Those are shackles that we put on ourselves, and we've been set free because we answer to no man, only our liberator and our God. Look how Paul puts it in verse 16. He says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you. Let's just back up a little bit. Therefore, that's an important word. That's a conjunction. It says, whatever just came before this, that's responsible for what I'm about to say. So the liberation from our sins by the, by the blood of Jesus, because of that, okay, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen, and they're puffed up with idle notions of their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head. And by the way, if you were with us a few weeks ago, chapter 1, that's a name for Jesus. It says he is the head of the body, the church. And what Paul has just said here is these people, puffed up by the pride, they have lost connection with Jesus himself. This is a big deal. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. So again, we need to understand the context. What's happening here? Why are these words said? Again, there are false teachers coming in with these very Jewish notions of what it means to be obedient to God and belong to him. And they're insisting that these new Christians, you have to do it this way. There are rules you've got to follow. There's rituals you've got to be a part of. There's only one way to do this, and we figured it out. And all the things in verse 16 that we read about, these dietary restrictions and, and, and religious festivals and new moon celebrations and Sabbath days, all these are straight out of Judaism. And they were important parts of following God back in the days of the Old Testament. Like there were commands from God, do these things. But our passage also reminds us that these, these were kind of like a preview of things to come. They were pointing forward towards Christ. And when he arrived, all of the old ways were to yield to him. 
It's kind of like, um, like I'm, a, I'm kind of a movie buff, and when a movie I'm, I'm excited about is coming out, I watch every trailer. Like, I watch the previews. I watch them, and I watch them, and I watch them, because I get excited, and I get pumped for that movie. But when the movie gets here, I'm not watching the trailer anymore, guys. I'm here to see the feature film. The trailers are done. And that's kind of the way that Judaism worked with Christianity. All of these rituals, these were the trailers leading up to the main event, the feature film, when Christ inhabits flesh and comes to this earth and saves us from our sins. And now that Jesus is here, those old ways, well, they're, they're kind of done. But these false teachers didn't get the memo. And so they keep insisting, no, you've got to do it the old way because this is how we've always done it. We figured it out. We've got it right. And in fact, your obedience to God is inferior because you're not doing it the way that we do it. There's a judgment coming upon them, an insistence that your faith is flawed somehow because it doesn't look like mine. And we experience today a, a kind of similar judgment in our own context. It's a little different because we don't have Jewish false teachers coming in. What we do, however, have oftentimes are people whose faith expression looks a little different, insisting that ours may be inferior in some way because it doesn't look like theirs. And this used to happen a lot in the past along denominational lines, you know, like Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Catholic, Christian, all this stuff. And we used to say, because you don't look like me, you got it wrong. Your faith is inferior. And we've moved past that, praise God. For a lot, by and large, we've moved past that. Today, if I were to say those divides were to show up mainly around generational lines, because we have a really unique challenge facing us today in this world. For the first time in human history, there are five generations. There might even be six now, last I counted. But at least five generations of people living together on the planet at the same time. And we're all supposed to get along somehow. Even though we've grown up in what are basically different worlds. People who grew up in the, the 50s lived in a different planet than those who grew up in the 80s, who grew up in the 2000s. Like, there are so many things that have happened, so many new questions, so many challenges that have shaped us and formed us that we grew up in very different places, and yet we're all supposed to come together and worship the same God and the same Christ. It's a challenge. And sometimes those generational lines, they cause us maybe to judge one another in ways that aren't appropriate. We saw a little bit of this in this past transition that we had back in April. You know, if you're not aware, we, we had a transition in April where our two worship services changed a little bit and became a little more contemporary. And I'll say this, I'm immensely proud of how this church has handled that because there was a lot of maturity and a lot of grace and a lot of patience that was shown by a lot of people as we went through this change. But there were some comments and some attitudes that showed up every once in a while that kind of speak to what we're talking about this morning. These ideas that, that your faith or your faith expression is inferior somehow because it doesn't look like mine. And it happened on both sides of the aisle. Some in an older generation might prefer a more somber, a more reserved worship service. Songs that are, are from an older era. There's a different tone to that kind of a service that just resonates with them. Those in a, a younger generation, oftentimes they prefer a more celebratory service, a more uh, anthemic song selection, a, a more vibrant um, energy in the room. They're just different. They're not wrong. They're not right. They're just different. Different expressions of worship for the same God. The challenge is when one group says to another, your faith is flawed. That expression is wrong. It's not as holy. It's not as revering. It's not as pleasing to God because it doesn't look like mine. We've got it right. We figured it out, y'all. That's sometimes how it sounds and how it comes across. It's a judgment. 
But it doesn't just happen in, in what we do on Sunday mornings. This happens in how we express our faith the other days of the week as well. This isn't really an issue. I haven't heard this conversation happen recently, like in the last few years, but it used to be tattoos. I remember some people would say Christians should not get tattoos because 1 Corinthians says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And then other people would look at something like the Sistine Chapel, and they would say that temple's got an awful lot of pretty art on the walls. It must not be that big a deal. And also, you should check out the context of that passage. Like, these are not wrong. Abstaining from tattoos, indulging in tattoos, neither is wrong, neither is right. They're just different expressions of faith. Different expressions of people who grew up in a different era with a different perspective and different viewpoint. There's diversity amongst those. Sometimes it looks like this. I, I, I drink alcohol or I don't drink alcohol. Or uh, I don't have a problem watching movies with a lot of violence in it. Or, you know, movies with violence, we, we just stay far, far away from that because we want to keep our eyes pure. Or um, we don't celebrate cultural holidays like Halloween or certain elements of Christmas because they have pagan ties and we want to keep our hearts pure. Or, you know, we do celebrate cultural holidays like, holiday, like Halloween, and, and we have a Christmas tree because Jesus has taken everything, and it's his, and we're going to give it to him. Like, there are different expressions of this faith. And by the way, neither one of these is more holy or more pleasing than its counterpart. You might be able to make an argument that some might be more mature, given the context of, of where you're located, but, but by and large, the, these are just different ways of expressing the same faith. There's a lot of diversity amongst God's people. Now, mind you, there, there are guardrails. There are lines between right and wrong, between, between righteousness and sin. Okay, there's black, there's white, but in between, there's a lot of gray. And that gray is not ambiguity, by the way. It's freedom. It's freedom to be who God made you to be, not who the world defines you as not who judgmental people would have you be, but to be the person whom God has made you in Christ, to express your faith and your devotion in him in a way that makes sense given the context and the background that you're coming from. In this margin, in this room, there is a lot of diversity. There is freedom to express our mutual faith in the diverse ways that make us distinct. Say that again. There is freedom to express our mutual faith in the diverse ways that make us distinct. Amen. You don't have to be somebody you're not. Again, there are barriers, there are lines. But in between, there's a whole lot of freedom. And that's something to enjoy. Because no longer do you have to be this particular kind of father, do you have to be this particular kind of husband, this particular kind of wife, this particular kind of mother, this particular kind of child. You don't have to be this particular kind of employer, employer. You don't have to be this particular kind of neighbor or friend. You are you. God made you the way that you are. You have been shaped because of where you've been placed in time and history. God did not mess up when he put you there. You don't have to measure up to the judgments of others. Just be who God made you to be in Christ. There's freedom in that. Now, hear me on this, okay? There's also a, a warning here. Because sometimes we're the ones being judged, but sometimes we're the ones judging as well. Your faith is inferior. It doesn't look like mine. You're messing up there. You're not doing it right because your expression of devotion doesn't look like mine. We need to be wary of that because that's exactly what these Colossian teachers were doing. And do you remember what Paul says? They have been cut off from the head. They've been cut off from Christ. They have lost their way. They're puffed up pride. Their idle minds have led them away from the Savior and the Liberator. They put shackles back on. It's not other people's faith that's inferior. It might be our own. And that's a hard, hard pill to swallow sometimes. So enjoy that freedom, but don't stumble over it. 
There's one other aspect of this freedom I want to talk about and highlight. It comes as we continue reading this. Sometimes this is the most challenging aspect to accept. Because Jesus has set us free from judgment of ourselves. Sometimes the harshest critic is the one that looks back at us in the mirror. Because he's forgiven us, other people have liberated, you know, they're not judging us. But sometimes we have the hardest time letting go of these expectations and letting go of our past. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. It says, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So again, talking to these Colossian people, he's saying, look, those false teachers, they put the bait out there, okay? They did put all these things out there, but you, why do you, as if you still belong to the world, why do you insist on putting those rules on your back? You're doing this to yourself, Colossians. And sometimes we do that too. We do this to ourselves because we feel this pressure to be something particular, to do so much, to achieve so much, to accomplish so much. And we got to smile the whole time we do it. We got to pretend to be very happy and nothing's wrong in our life because if we show the truth that sometimes we do struggle, that sometimes we are cracked on the inside, that sometimes we do need healing, then all of a sudden we are somehow inferior. We didn't measure up. We didn't do it. We didn't pull it off. There's this immense pressure that some of us feel to perform, and that's not what following Christ is about. It's not about performing. It's about being with him and following him and honoring him with our lives. You don't have to do that. Here's the thing. God didn't ask you to measure up. In fact, he knew you couldn't measure up. That's why he sent Jesus to save us. You don't have to measure up to some impossible standard. You don't have to measure up to the judgments of other people. You've been set free from that just to be who God made you to be as you honor him with your life. You don't have to measure up to some impossible standard. And that's sometimes so hard for people to grasp. I know myself, I struggle with that. It took me years and years to figure that out. Like I even remember as a teenager, I just had this overwhelming sense of guilt hanging around my neck because I didn't do enough good things that day or I did something bad or I didn't follow all the rules or I, I missed an opportunity to do something good. So God obviously isn't going to be very happy with me because I didn't measure up today. You ever been there before? Some of you are still there. And you're trying to measure up to some impossible standard and the only person putting that monkey on your back is you. God didn't put that burden on your back. He sets you free. Other people can't make you measure up to that standard. You've been set free from that. The only person holding us to that standard is the one looking back at us in the mirror. We don't have to measure up to that person. We've been set free from them. The only judge that we answer to is God, our Savior. And he hasn't put extra benchmarks on top of salvation. Now, we said earlier there are lines, and we read that in our passage. There is a sensual uh, indulgence that needs to be there is a flesh that needs to be put to death. But beyond that, God hasn't put extra requirements of what it means to follow him and be loved by him. You don't have to pray so many hours in a day. You don't have to pray for X number of people in a week. You don't have to memorize this many number of Bible verses. You don't have to serve this many hours in the church nursery. Though, if you wanted to, I certainly would not complain. Like there, there are extra achievements that you have to do so that you can level up in God's eyes. 
It's just Jesus. You follow him, you honor him, that's all. And that is a weight that is removed from us, that is taken off our shoulders. And there is real freedom when we grasp that truth. We've been set free to be who God created us to be in Christ. And those last two words are probably the most important. I'm not free to be who sin and the world tell me to be. That's bondage. That's where we came from. I'm not free to be who other people demand I be and measure up to. That is bondage. I'm not even free to be the me that my idle and misguided mind tells me I ought to be. I am free to be somebody greater than any of those people. I'm free to be who God made me to be in Christ. You are free to be who God made you to be in Christ. And that greatest you is found not by pursuing lesser things, not by pursuing ourselves, but by pursuing him in his power, his grace, according to his word. That is the greatest freedom we could ever hope to find. Let me pray for us.